0: We are in Mark's Gospel, we are in the third chapter, and uh, we're going to begin to increase our pace a little bit, at least over the next couple of weeks. So today we're considering Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 20 through 35, and a message that I've titled, and I hope you'll see this in the text in just a moment, I've titled it, The Crowd the close, the critics, and the community of the King. The crowd, the close, the critics, and the community of the King. This passage of Scripture answers this question, who really belongs to Jesus? There's a lot of people around Jesus. A lot of people go to things that have to do with Jesus. A lot of people sit in a pew on Sunday. But who really belongs to Jesus? Would you hear now the Word of God? Mark chapter 3, verse 20. And He, meaning Jesus, came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When His own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of Him, for they were saying, He's lost His senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and He casts out the demons by the ruler of demons." And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables, saying, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house. The strong man is Beelzebul, or Satan. And plunder his property, unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister. And Mother, may God bless the reading of His Word. Would you pray with me? God, help us to know with assurance this day the victory that You have secured for those who belong to You. And help us to know this day that we truly belong to You. And God, for those who are merely a part of the crowd or the close or the critics, God, may this be the day that they join the community of King Jesus. We ask it in His name. Amen. There's someone I've quoted from quite extensively in my sermons on the series of Mark. His name is James Edwards. And in my opinion, he's written one of the most fantastic commentaries on the Gospel of Mark that's ever been written. And within that Gospel, he he calls the section of verses from verse 13 of chapter 3 down through verse 34 of chapter 4. He calls that entire section insiders and outsiders. Two weeks ago, we saw that Jesus called His Apostles up the mountain to be with Him and to be sent out by Him, to be on the inside of what Jesus is doing. You see, a Christian is not a Christian unless she is truly in Christ. And if we are not in Christ, our lives... And excuse me when we are in Christ, our lives take on the purpose and the identity and the ministry of Jesus. We trade our identity for Christ's identity. Our purposes and our mission become the purposes of mi- and mission of Christ in the world. To be inside of Christ is to be saved. Read Ephesians. Everything that happens to the believer is in Christ, in Christ. We are predestined in Christ. We are ordained in Christ. We're sent in Christ. There's no salvation unless you're on the inside with Jesus. And Mark is essentially saying the same thing to us in these verses. Have you ever noticed that Nearly everyone wants to be an insider. People want to be in the know. They want to have the inside track. Nobody wants to be the last kid chosen for the kickball team. No little girl wants to come to Sunday school or kids worship for the first time where she doesn't know anybody. No one wants to be that guy at the table who totally missed the humor on the inside joke. We want to be on the in crowd. We want others to include us. And yet, when it comes to Jesus, there are so many people who are settling for being outsiders. In these verses, Mark shows us what it takes to be an insider with Jesus. To be a part of His family, His church, and ultimately, the community of the King, the Kingdom of God. You see, to be in Christ's family, we see in this text three things. First, we must understand that many who come close to the things of Jesus are still not in Christ's family. Wow. That's a dangerous truth. It's a convicting reality. It should cause us all to ask, am I merely close to the things of Jesus but not really in Christ? Secondly, we must not allow our intellect or our traditions or our positions of authority to blind us to God's work through Christ. This text is helping us understand what it means to be inside of God's family. And the the first thing that it does in verses 20 through 22 is it warns us about those who get close to Jesus, but never really belong to Jesus. We see this in the crowd. Once again, the crowd shows up. The crowd is an obstacle rather than an asset to God's mission They want to consume Jesus, not surrender to Him. The crowd is so thick that Jesus and His apostles can't even sit down and have a meal together. Literally, they can't eat a loaf of bread. Bread signifies God's provision for His people, and it's why Jesus will soon say to the same disciples that the bread represents His body, a body that He will give for us and for our salvation. And Mark's point is that if you keep coming around the things of Jesus but you never get around to sitting at the table with Jesus that you've missed Jesus. If you keep coming around, but you never feast with Him, you never commune with Him, you never let Him be your nourishment and your sustenance and the very life that you have, you've missed the point. The power for living out what Jesus desires for His church is found in our union with Christ and our union with one another, partaking of the bread of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But it isn't just the crowd that gets close It's also His own people, literally those of Him. This likely refers to Jesus' family, and then Mark picks up Jesus' family later, but it's not necessarily His family. It could have also been sort of a cadre of people who were around the twelve and were familiar with the things of Jesus. No matter who they are, here's what's happening. The opposition to Jesus is escalating, The crowd wants to consume Jesus. And there are some who are close to Jesus who want to take it a step further. They even want to control Him. They try to seize or arrest or bind Him. The close people, the people who are close, are those who've been with Him long enough to have their reputation on the line for their affiliation with Jesus. They've been close enough to Jesus that when Jesus gets really radical... When he gets really crazy, when people start to really notice that this guy is saying he's bringing an entirely different kingdom down and that you've got to bow the knee to him, that gets a little bit too hot and heavy for those who are close to Jesus. You see, Jesus is flexing his authoritative muscle. Things are getting uncomfortable, and so they try to come and take custody of Jesus. They say that Jesus has lost his senses. Imagine that. The creator of the human mind is being accused of insanity. As Edwards writes, those closest to Jesus believe His conflicts with the authorities are mistaken. They want to come and take Him and perhaps even deprogram Him and set Jesus straight. You know, this still happens in the world today. Every time we open the Bible and we say, well, that's not really what it means. It means this, so we can make it comfortable for 21st century Christianity. That's what we're doing. We're saying, let me seize and arrest Jesus and create a Jesus in my image. Every time a denomination or a pastor tries to take the Bible and explain what is clearly written in a way that makes it undermine what is clearly written. They are seizing Jesus and saying, well, Jesus must be out of His mind. It happens every week in this country when a pastor or a denomination stands and cowers away from God's truth rather than standing under and upon God's truth. We won't do that at North Roanoke Baptist Church. They can haul me away They can seize me, but they will not seize the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, out of this church. We will stand on God's truth. He doesn't need any deprogramming, any reprogramming. It is truth, and we will organize our church and what we do and how we live and what we hold one another accountable to on the Word of God. Because if we don't, all we are is we're a crowd or we're close to Jesus. And the moment that He impugns us and makes us feel uncomfortable, it's the moment that we feel uncomfortable that we prove that we are surrendered to His authority, not to our authority. If you're never uncomfortable for following Jesus, then maybe you're just close to Him. You don't really belong to Him. If your Jesus is comfortable all the time, if He doesn't require of you radical sacrifice, if He doesn't require of you to go share the gospel with your neighbor, if He doesn't require of you to love your enemy, if He doesn't require anything of you that doesn't hurt and doesn't make you step back and think, God, are you really calling me to this? Then you've got to ask this question, am I really following Jesus? Are you here this morning? Secondly, we must not allow our intellect Or our traditions or our positions of authority to blind us to God's work through Jesus Christ. Mark is careful to tell us that the scribes came down from Jerusalem. Why did he tell us that? You can't not come down from Jerusalem, Jerusalem's on a hill. If you go to the east, to the west, the north, the south, you've got to come down from Jerusalem. So why did he even bother to say they came down from Jerusalem? Because when you come down to someone, you're condescending. Let us come out of the temple complex. Let us come down and put Jesus in His right place. You see, their physical movement is a reflection of their inward disposition. They're coming down from their lofty, authoritative perches to set Jesus straight. Edwards tells us the scribes are the default opponents of Jesus. If you truly stand for Jesus long enough, you will have some default opponents. You'll have some people that all they want to do is oppose you because you're trying to make much of Jesus. Just expect it. You will have opposition if you make much of Jesus. If Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords and there is no rival, there is no authority, there's nothing else that stands on the stage with Jesus, then somebody's going to be upset about it. As Edwards writes, the evidence demands a decision from the beholder as to its source and its significance. The scribes don't deny the evidence. Instead, they say his power comes from Satan or Beelzebul rather than God. You know, that was just stupid. That was just dumb. I like the Cracker Barrel. Anybody like the Cracker Barrel? You know the triangle game with the T's in it? I can get it it down to one which means I am not an ignoramus. If you leave, I think it's four. If you leave four, you're an ignoramus. That's what it says. This question makes them an ignoramus. And Jesus takes the question He says, hey, y'all gather around. Verse 23. Let me ask you a question. How can Satan cast out Satan? How does that make any sense? In other words, Beelzebub is the arch enemy of God and the ruler of a dynasty of demons. Why would he cast out a demon? And accelerate his own fall. doesn't make any sense. So there's two reasons that the scribe's argument is foolish. One, it's simply illogical. Just a moment ago, they were accusing Jesus of being out of his mind, and now the scribes are proving that the only one who's got a mind in this situation is Jesus. Jesus shows us that if what the scribes say is true, Satan is working at cross purposes with himself, and he's only going to accelerate his fall. Secondly, Jesus has come for the purpose of vanquishing Satan. He's come to destroy Satan and his demonic dynasty and to free his people. He's the one that John the Baptist back in chapter 1 said would be the mighty one who would work in the Holy Spirit's power, but the scribes do not accept the good work of Jesus as God's work. And when they do that, that puts them on dangerous, very dangerous footing. As Isaiah writes, Woe unto those who call evil good, and good evil. Jesus is the king of the kingdom that is opposed to the kingdom in the house of Satan. He's come to bind, verse 27, that strong man, and go into his house and bind him up and then rob him of all the demons who serve in his name so that his kingdom can come in power. The authority that he gives his apostles last week or two weeks ago is an authority that is even greater than the power of Satan because Christ at the cross binds him up and he says, I give unto my people the authority to go in Jesus' name wherever I take them. The mission of Jesus has nothing to do with compromise and coexistence with Satan and his demons. Outsiders are trying to bind up Jesus and tell him he's crazy. But Jesus has come to bind Satan and bring the oppressed people into the kingdom of God. It's on. It's war. It's kingdom against kingdom. And Jesus' kingdom wins. So seeing what Jesus is doing... And concluding that He is allied with Satan poses a very big problem for the scribes. It means they've completely misjudged Jesus. They've completely misjudged His mission and their need to be a part of His victory in His kingdom. And Jesus in verse 28 uses these words, Truly I say to you. Whenever you read the words, Truly I say to you, or Verily, Verily I say to you, Jesus is saying it's serious. Now, everything that Jesus says is serious. So when Jesus says it's serious, it's serious, serious. It's like when your mom or your dad called you by your first and your middle name. Daniel James, listen up. Jesus begins by assuring us in verse 28 that all sins and blasphemies will be forgiven. Now, don't miss that. That's a great promise. Because what happens when Christians read this, they immediately go to the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And they're like, they get freaked out. But look at verse 28. All sins and blasphemies will be forgiven. And we should not miss the great hope of that statement. All the sins we've sinned, all the times we've doubted and blamed and questioned or insulted God or His people, forgiveness is available through Christ, but there is an exception. Whoever should blaspheme against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Verse 29. Edwards writes this, This is one of the most disturbing statements of Jesus in the Gospels. But Mark helps us understand what he means when he tells us that the scribes were saying he has an unclean spirit. In other words, the sin against the Holy Spirit is a specific misjudgment that Jesus is motivated by evil rather than by good. That he's empowered by Satan rather than by God. Lane adds this, "...the expulsion, or the casting out of demons, was a sign of the intrusion of the kingdom of God, and yet the scribes' accusations against Jesus amounted to a denial of the power and the greatness of the Spirit of God. By assigning the action of God to demonic origin, the scribes betray a perversion of spirit in defiance of the truth, which chooses to call light darkness, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit denotes the, get this, conscience conscious and deliberate rejection of the saving power and grace of God released through Jesus. Repetition and a fixed attitude of mind brought the scribes to the brink of unforgivable blasphemy. Aiken helps us here and he says this, the unpardonable sin is to knowingly, willingly, and persistently attribute to Satan the works of God done by and in Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit who testifies of these truths to your heart. It's not a sin of ignorance. It's a sin full of knowledge. It is an ongoing disposition of the heart that resists the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It is a verbal act that attributes the works of the Spirit to Satan. It is a willful rejection of God's grace in Jesus. It is rooted in unbelief. And it is a sin that a Christian cannot commit. Jesus' words are intended to warn us not to make us worry. As Edwards writes, anyone who is worried about having committed the sin against the Holy Spirit has not yet committed it. For anxiety of having done so is evidence of the potential for repentance. In other words, if you're worried about if you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit, then you haven't yet blasphemed the Holy Spirit because you don't want to blaspheme. You don't want to be guilty of it. Congratulations, you haven't committed the sin yet. There's no record in Scripture of anyone asking forgiveness of God and being denied it. See, here's the issue. The scribes have all the evidence that they need to trust in Jesus, and yet they still don't want to. Because Jesus is an affront to their authority and their assumptions and their traditions. So we can be equipped to give a defense for the gospel, but spiritual battle is never merely won with evidence. It takes the Holy Spirit of God breaking down the defenses of the heart and breaking in and making somebody new. Which is... The reason that the sin of the Holy Spirit comes between the crowd and the close and the scribes, and then what follows beginning in verse 31. Do you notice the connective tissue? Jesus starts, or Mark starts, with the question of, do these people really belong to Jesus? No, they don't. Then there's the issue of the Holy Spirit and the the blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Then in verses 31 through 35, the question is what? Who is really in the family of God? Those who are really in the family of God are those who have not blasphemed the Holy Spirit, but they've been made new by the Holy Spirit so that they can receive the work of God in Christ who came in the power of the Holy Spirit. If the crowd and the close and the critics are not insiders, then who can get in on the victory of Christ? Surely his family gets in, right? Think about this. Mark is writing 30 years after Jesus has been raised from the dead. Jesus' brother James is the lead pastor at the first megachurch of Jerusalem. And Mark talks smack about James. You see, during Jesus' ministry, Jesus' family, including James presumably, assumes that it has all the rights and privileges that that belong to Jesus. They think Jesus, in fact, needs to abandon or change His mission so that their family doesn't look too bad. And notice where Jesus' family is in verse 31. They're not inside. They're outside. And when Jesus learns that His family is waiting on Him, He asks them a staggering question. Who are My mother and My brothers? Even Jesus' family must enter the kingdom on the king's terms. Belonging to the community of, ki- of the king is not based on our biology or anything else that we possess, but on submission to God and to His will. You see, Mark could, only, could not be any clearer. There's two kinds of people. There are those who sit on the inside at Jesus' feet, and there are those who stand on the outside with false assumptions. If Mary has to enter the kingdom of God the way that everyone else does, then no one enters the kingdom of God just because we grew up around the things of Jesus. Just because you went to Sunday school your whole life. Just because you memorized all your Awana verses. Just because you got all your badges and your stars and you you gave 10%, you gave offerings. None of that gets you in. You've got to be made new by the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit of God. Edward says this, those who think they're close to Jesus should think again. But those who know that they are far from Him should take hope. And here's the hope. Jesus does have a family. He looks around at those who are seated around Him and He says, Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus is looking at his disciples. We know that from Matthew's gospel. And as he does this, he redefines the very definition of family. I've heard Christian after Christian say, there's nothing in the world like family. And what they mean is their biological family. But Jesus turns that on its head and he says, there's nothing in the world like the family of God. Those who sit around the feet of Jesus and who do the will of God, they are the ones who belong to Him. And the promise of God is this, anyone, anyone, anyone can be an insider who will sit under the authority of Jesus at His feet and do the will of the Father. And what is the will of the Father? That we would repent of our sin. That we would be changed by the Spirit of God from the inside out. And that we would live not for our glory, but for the glory of the Son by being with Him and being sent by Him until He comes. Are you a part of the crowd? Have you been close to Jesus? And when Jesus gets uncomfortable, you try to redefine Him? Are you a critic? Is your professional role in the family of God just to criticize and critique and look for the angle and the next complaint? Or are you a citizen of the kingdom of God? Are you a part of the community of the King?